and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to be doing this show live on call-in today. And for those of you who listen to it elsewhere, know that usually I'm on call-in every Thursday at 6 p.m. So I welcome you all to visit me there, to ask questions, or just listen in, as you do if you listen to this podcast later. Today's podcast is going to have two parts to it. In the second part, I'm going to go over our choices, when by our, I mean the Fromer's staff's choices for the best places to go in 2022. Uh, this is something we do every year. We pick the best places to go in the, in the coming year. It takes our staff months to put together the list. This year's is very, very interesting. I'll go more deeply into it in the second half of the show. But for this first half of the show, I have an interview with a terrific writer named Nick Hunt. He wrote an absolutely revelatory book about Europe, but not the Europe that most of us think about when we think about Europe. He doesn't write about the great cities of that continent. Instead, he goes into the nature areas that people don't know about. And so it's it, so this is pre-recorded, and part of it was recorded a couple of weeks before Christmas. It, I'm playing it a little later than expected, so hence the Christmas mention in it, because I know you all are listening to this well after Christmas. So I recorded this previously. Here is Nick Hunt, author of Walking Europe's Unlikely Landscapes. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Nick. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. One of the fun parts of reading this book is, uh, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you are a word nerd. Uh, you <laughs> often go deeply into the meaning of, of words in a really fascinating way. And so I got to start with why did you name this book Outlandish? Well, I think I was looking for... Um, a word that would describe these landscapes that I explore in the book, which um, are kind of, I saw as anomalies, the strange little um, patches of environments and climates in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect them. I'm sure we'll go into that at more length. Sure. Um, and I had this this kind of I, unlikely landscapes was, it's in the subtitle, that was a kind of working idea for what I might call these kinds of places. Someone suggested strange lands at, at one point. And then I talked about the, the idea of outlandishness and the, the kind of old you know, etymological roots of, of outlandish. And that just kind of became, presented itself as the obvious title for the book. And that described these kinds of places um, more accurately than anything else. Right. Well, at one point you, you describe them as portals. That, that you're in Europe and yet suddenly you're confronted with a portal to a type of ecosystem that you would expect to see in Antarctica or in the American West or in any place but Europe. And it, it, for me, I mean, actually, I'm, I use the word revelatory. I'm a little embarrassed that I did because I'm just noticing it's on the cover of your book. <laughs> but... It's revelatory for us Americans because when we think of European travel, I think we think of 
art-filled cities and castles and vineyards. And yet you are exploring the parts of Europe that often are still wild nature. But those parts are, are disappearing pretty quickly, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, um, I think when a lot of Europeans think of, of their own continent, they think of a similar thing. You know, it's the kind of the tamest in many ways, the most sort of um, settled and cultivated and um, tamed um, of, of kind of all the continents in the world. I think that's the, that's the perception. Sure. And I've always been fascinated um, as a walker, walking often long distance in Europe, that you can you can find these kind of surprising, as you say, portals into something that feels much wilder and much stranger and much more exciting. And you don't have to go very far. You know, you don't have to go into the the depths of a of a national park. You can find these places on the edges of cities, in proximity to human civilization. And in a way, for me, that it kind of makes them more exciting and more surprising to stumble up across such places where you, you're not really expecting to find them. Right. Well, one of the most surprising places that you describe in the book, at least to me, was the Arctic that uh, exists in Scotland, an area that sounds downright dangerous uh, from the way you describe it. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the meaning of Arctic and, and, and what it is like in Scotland? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, a region of Scotland called the Cairngorms in the northeast. It's a, it is a national park. It's a, um, a mountain range that's really a high plateau. You know, it's not kind of um, peaks that you have to ascend with ropes. It's all quite eroded and, and seemingly flat, but it's high because it's, um, it's the highest upland on the British Isles. And the Cairngorms are quite, you know, they're quite well known by walkers and climbers as this kind of one of the few sort of wilderness areas really that exist in the UK but I don't think that most people even that walk there would necessarily know that it has this unique designation um, as being arctic alpine tundra so I got very into kind of classifications of different types of landscapes and the book refers to um, a a system called the Geiger so so called the Köppen um, climate classification this um, German, Russian German climatologist divided the world into these kind of banded areas of similar climates, so desert climates and you know sub subarctic climates and humid continental climates. And the Cairngorms is just it's this little patch of Arctic alpine tundra that otherwise you'd expect to find in Greenland or northern Canada or Scandinavia. And it's this little island of, of tundra, seemingly marooned in the middle of Scotland. So it's very different to the neighbouring highlands, which are kind of warmer, wetter, um, more humid. And the Cairngorms is much drier, much colder. And it has this, I mean, tundra is kind of typified by this very dense, interwoven ecosystem of, of lichen and moss and heather. And you don't, I mean, I'd, I'd never seen anything like this before on the British Isles, just having moss so deep you could sink in, up to your knees. And this yeah. uh, reindeer lichen that, you know, is 
eaten by reindeer in Scandinavia. And I never had any idea that this grew in such abundance um, in Scotland. Well, I never knew there were reindeer in Scotland, uh, which you give the history of in the book, that they were there eons ago and then reintroduced. And just because it's almost Christmas, would you would you tell <laughs> a little bit about reindeer urine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean... Um, this is one one explanation for uh, Father Christmas riding on a through the sky on reindeer, is that um, reindeer consume a lot of you know they eat uh, browsing and they eat a lot of fly agaric mushrooms, which are um, psychotropic mushrooms used by shamans, Sami shamans, as you know to transport them to other worlds. And the 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 working idea is that um, reindeer urine was drunk by shamans in order to kind of get the after effects of this psycho psychotrophic drug um, right. and used in ceremonies. But there And because of that, that that they might be the shamans may be the source of flying reindeer. Or the, right. the idea of them. Yeah. And so the the kind of the Sami culture of Scandinavia, which I'd seen before in Finland, I, I was up in Arctic Finland and saw a reindeer roundup. Um, some years ago, writing about Sami languages. But this was always, this is Europe's really kind of only indigenous population. Um, and for, throughout history, there's kind of been, you know, the, the kind of Christian countries to the, to the south and to the west knew about the existence of this mysterious pagan reindeer herding culture who yeah. had shamans and seemed to practice magic and kind of stories of it's another theory about the origin of witches like in the philip pullman books there's these you know sort of scandinavian witches who fly around the sky um, and this draws again on this old kind of knowledge of these deeply mysterious people um on the very fringe of europe who were you know utterly different to the more settled populations kind of that that slowly took them over and there's yeah. this intriguing link that I go to in the book, um, that this, the reindeer in the Kangorms were actually reintroduced by a Swedish Sami reindeer herder who was visiting Scotland on his honeymoon in the 1950s. And he, in his own account, he kind of stepped out of the train at Avimor, which is the, the town on the edge of the Kangorm plateau. And he looked towards the Kangorms and saw a very similar landscape to the one that he raised and grazed reindeers on you know back in 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 sweden um so he got permission to bring a few individuals over right. as an experiment and then this herd just kind of thrived and now there's i think about 150 reintroduced reindeer um and this lovely connection with the kind of sami cultures of the far north yeah no it it was that was absolutely fascinating as was your description of the different climates there where instead of just seeing your shadow on the ground uh it can float in the air uh can you talk about i think you call it broken specters yeah it's a broken specter it's a german term for it's a kind of upright shadow it's quite hard to describe but if you imagine seeing your shadow but your shadow is as you say not flat on the ground but is standing vertically um, sort of parallel to you, normally backlit by this uh, kind of rainbow halo 
kind of rainbow colored rays sort of emanating from the figure's head and this is a, it's a not, i mean it's not kind of that rare to see this in mountains but i'd never seen one before but when i've uh, never heard uh, one before I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating that this exists yeah, it's a misty a misty day and the sun at a certain angle and it just casts your shadow on the mist effectively so it looks like it's just there in the air right um, right but very magic sightings and is connected in the Cairngorms with this, possibly connected with this figure, the big grey man of Ben McDewey, um, who is a, a figure who haunts the... Um, ben McDewey is one of the highest mountains. It's the highest mountain in the Cairngorms. Mm. And uh, this figure is a kind of almost sort of Yeti-like apparition that many people claim to have seen over the years. And that was my my version of it, was seeing the Brocken Spectre. Yeah, yeah. You also visit uh, Poland, and it's what you call a jungle, what I think others would might call a, an old-growth forest. Uh, and it has a, a, not only a tragic history, but a, a tragic uh, current situation. Can you talk a little bit about the forests of Poland? And, and yeah. Belarus, I should say, because it sure. goes over the border. So this is the Białowieża Forest in the east of Poland and the west of Belarus, straddling the border. It's the biggest, the largest remaining remnant of the old growth, the the, the um, primeval forest that once covered much of Europe and is about you know, sort of 12,000 years old it grew up. And Bielwesia, for various reasons, has never been interfered with. It's never been logged extensively. Um, it, it was preserved as a hunting reserve for Polish and Lithuanian kings, and then Russian czars, and then the Nazis, and they've all kind of tried to preserve it as this sort of pure space in a way. And obviously the Germans interpreted that in a, a kind of eugenic um, eugenic yeah. way. They weren't there very long, but it's just been left. Um, and then the Soviet Union had reasons to preserve it as a kind of border fortification in a way, as kind of a bulwark against, against um, Central and Western Europe. Anyone but who, now, yeah, but... anyone who's seen the news fairly recently might have seen there's a this awful situation with Belarus. The government of Belarus seems to have been sending waves of refugees and migrants into yeah. the forest with guarantees that they will be able to cross over into the EU. And the Polish police and army have been turning them back. So there's people stuck in this kind of, you know terrifying place really if you're especially from a, a desert country and you sure. find yourself in primeval wildwood where there are wolves um and border cards and, and cold and it's winter yeah winter's coming so that's the very region i was in and i think if i you know if i'd known what was about to happen a couple of years later that chapter would have been very different having that um yeah that addition well, so well, that's interesting because for me, the, the chapter was very much about the attempts both by the government and by a group of uh, uh, eco-warriors, I think is the best word for them, uh, who you end up bunking with and, and exploring the forest together. And, and to, you know, and, and you, you talk about their attempts to save the forest and it's it's interesting from from the way you describe it at least at the beginning it seems like both sides 
are trying to save the forest, but maybe not one side isn't taking the science into uh, account well enough, it sounds like, as a reader. Yeah, so this is the Polish government some years ago started logging what's essentially a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, under the pretext of fighting an infestation of spruce bark beetles, which were killing spruce trees, um, which sounds like, you know, fairly legitimate. It was a big outbreak of this beetle that was killing trees. But what became obvious very quickly is they were they were cutting down trees fairly indiscriminately, old growth oaks, 500 year old oak trees. And the timber was being sold. And they were clear-cutting swathes of, you know, this the kind of Europe's last remaining wildwood um, against all ecological advice. And a group of activists who I, as you say, I bunked with and who taught me about the forest, took the government on really a, a mixture of kind of direct action, lying in front of bulldozers and that kind of thing. But really what they did was they patrolled the forest and they gathered evidence about where the logging was taking place and what the scale of it was. And they gave that evidence to the European Court of Justice, who start, who threatened Poland with, with fines of you know, kind of millions of euros a week, right. you know, of huge fines. And that's what stopped, well, a halt, it's kind of paused the logging. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. As you say, it was interesting because the the more traditional people who live in kind of towns that used to be old logging towns their view is very much forests need management you know dead wood is a fire hazard and dead wood is a waste of wood so it needs to be cleared it needs to be managed trees need to be felled and then on the other side the activists and the scientists and the ecologists are saying no you know dead wood is is life and it literally right. is is that that's where you get this incredibly rich biodiverse ecosystem that couldn't exist if it weren't for branches and trunks lying on the forest floor. Well, you so get very they, philosophical about that. I mean, it, at, you say in this forest, the, uh, what's the word, the border between death and life is very, very hard to see. It really is. Yeah. You're kind of, it st- it, those distinctions break down because it's very hard. So the the uh, the healthy parts of Bioavasia contain over fifty percent of dead wood, which you know paradoxically means it's it's more alive than anywhere else. So it's this kind of it's very hard to see what the where the distinction is between life and death because death is you know it is giving birth to thousands of species. Right. Yeah. You say that it can take hundreds of years for a tree to fully rot away, which I had yeah. no, I never knew. And, and it gives, uh, it gives a home to generations of different yeah. species. Yeah. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Yeah. Fasc- it was fascinating. And then you, uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, so we'll end in Spain. <laughs> you go to Spain where you encounter, uh, a dismaying landscape called the plastic sea you're there to see the desert but what was the plastic sea yeah this was i didn't know it was going to be there it's the the yeah the mar de plastico the plastic sea is a a huge um a, a coastal plain in almeria which is just south of the the desert that i went to that is entirely literally covered in in plastic 
it's um it's polytunnels. I mean, polytunnels make them sound quite small. They're like kind of large plastic structures that are back to back, spreading um, for an area. It covers so much of this coastal plain that weirdly, it actually cools the cools the local atmosphere apparently by one degree because of all the light being reflected back into space. But underneath the plastic, it's it's you know conditions like a sauna where fruit and vegetables are grown intensively and and harvested by um mostly migrant workers from north africa who would you know live in pretty squalid conditions and um earn very little and have no job security and living in these kind of pesticide soaked incredibly hot greenhouses so yeah it was a very very strange sight to see yeah, no, it sounded like it. I, I mean, uh, what I love about this book is I, I thought I knew Europe until I read it. Well, I didn't think I knew Europe. I mean, the, actually, that I'm being uh, facetious uh, because Europe is a massive uh, place to visit. But uh, you showed me a part of Europe that I had no idea even existed. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much. It's such a wonderful read. Once again, it's called Outlandish. Walking Europe's Unlikely Landscapes. Thank you so much, Nick, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you very much. And I hope that kind of piques people's interest about what else might be in the book. There's a lot of other strange and wonderful places in there as well. Absolutely. We only touched the surface with this interview. Thanks again. Thank you. So I think you can hear what a splendid storyteller Nick Hunt is. Uh, it, it really is. If you want a great book to start the new year with, one that will not only show you parts of Europe that you've never even heard of, but also uh, educate you about the de- different ecological issues that continent is uh, facing, uh, I can't recommend Outlandish highly enough. It's a really, really great read. Fascinating. Fun. Okay. I promised to count down the top places to go, and I got to start with a bit of a caveat. Uh, We came up with this list mm, six weeks ago or so, and in this era of pandemic, uh, everything changes so fast. Would we have come up with this same list uh, now? I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, That's the crazy thing. But what we did when we came up with this list is what we do every year. We, We look at the world and we try and figure out which places are going to be unusually good to visit in the coming year, either because something special is happening there, there's an event, there's an anniversary, there's something that will only be happening in 2022, or because a destination is suddenly far less expensive than it was in years past. Uh, Or it might be that this is a destination where you could have the same type of experience that you'd have in a far more popular destination, uh, but with less crowds and for less money just right now. Because of the pandemic, we were very aware that international travel is far more difficult 
Most of our readers are Americans, so we decided to concentrate wholly on places in the United States. That doesn't mean we think you shouldn't go abroad. We just think that in the coming months, it's probably easier uh, to stay in the United States. And God knows we have so little vacation time here that, that there's some value to easier. Not, not everybody can spend a lot of time and money traveling. And right now, with all the barriers to international travel, not the least of which is the requirement that you get a COVID test in 24 hours before returning, which is getting which has been hard to do with Omicron because so many people all over the world are clamoring for COVID tests. We just thought this made sense. So here are our top 10 picks in no particular order. Uh, So number one, again, it's not number one. It's just the one I'm discussing first. The Kenai Peninsula. In the last decade, Alaskan cruises have soared in popularity. Everybody wants to go to Alaska for one very sad reason. They know that Alaska is changing drastically because of climate change, and they want to see it before it's a wholly different place. But not everybody is a cruiser. It's not my favorite type of vacation. I prefer to go at my own pace. I don't want to go around in a crowd And quite frankly, just yesterday when I'm recording this, the CDC announced that it doesn't think anybody should cruise right now, despite the fact that the cruise industry has put into place a lot of smart-seeming protocols. Omicron is pushing them all to the side. Omicron has proved so infectious that yesterday the Centers for Disease Control announced that It did not think that even fully vaccinated people should cruise at this time. So the fact that you can't cruise to Alaska right now doesn't mean, though, that you can't go and have every type of adventure you would have on Alaskan cruise, but just do it on land. And you do that by going to the Kenai Peninsula. The Kenai Peninsula is this uh, peninsula that juts out about 150 uh, miles from Anchorage. It's where the folks in Anchorage go when they want to take their own road trips and vacations. And you drive this beautiful two-lane highway right by the water. In fact, I remember years ago when I got on it, just glancing to the side and seeing a whale breaching in the water from the highway. I couldn't believe it. And then a couple of minutes later, I looked up and there was an eagle soaring overhead. And in the in the distance in front of me were these massive mountains soaring one mile up into space. And it was indisputably Alaska. It was one of the most beautiful road trips I have ever taken. And a road trip that, that, as I said before, allows you to have all the classic Alaskan experiences, like stopping to pan for gold or visiting a place that trains dogs for the Iditarod and getting to take a dog sled ride or taking a day cruise uh, into the Prince William Sound so you can see glaciers calving 
and whales again breaching and uh, seals and all kinds of other critters. Uh, you know, it, it's just an incredible day-long cruise. Um, and you also see things you don't expect in Alaska unless you know about Alaskan culture. At the end of the Kenai Peninsula is this cute as kittens town. It's called Homer, and it's where the artists of Alaska go. So it's filled with galleries and great restaurants, and nearby is one of the most prolific salmon runs on the planet. So incredible fishing uh, and kayaking and hiking, and you just don't run out of things to see and do in Alaska. As I said at the start, it's the Alaskan experience, but without cruising. So that's the first one on the list. Second one is Charleston. Now, Charleston has long been a hugely popular destination because it is, without hyperbole, probably the best preserved Old South city. So you go there and you see these pastel-colored mansions filled with uh, intricately lacy balconies, iron iron balconies, and you eat sumptuous seafood feasts, and you hear all about the Old South. That's not why I'm sending you there this year, though. I'm sending you there because this year, for the first time, or next year, 2022, a spectacular and important new museum is, go, is going to open. It's called the International African American Museum. And it had to be in Charlotte because Charlotte was the town that 40% of enslaved Africans were brought to when they came to the U.S., there's a local uh, artist named Jonathan Green who came on CNN to discuss the new museum, and, and he said that Charleston is, the, is Ellis Island for black people. This is where so many people's ancestors first set foot in the United States, and it looks like this museum is going to do a splendid and important job in discussing the African diaspora in discussing what it was like to be brought here as a slave and to give birth to children who would then be enslaved and what that history felt like, what it consisted of. Um, it, 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 it looks like it's really going to be a game-changing new museum and kind of an, an important corrective to the romanticized version that people used to get of the Old South when they visited Charleston. So you'll get, you know, you'll get that side of Charleston if you go and you'll get to see Fort Sumter and you're going to have she-crab soup, but you'll also see a sobering picture of what underlay the lifestyle of the, of the Old South and of the New South too, to be frank. Uh, so an important museum. Yellowstone is third on our list, uh, and that is because it is the 150th anniversary of that park, but not only of that park, but of the very concept of national parks. Until 
150 years ago, there were no national parks anywhere in the world. It had never occurred to anybody that certain tracts of land were so spectacular, so important biologically, that they should be protected. And yet the American Congress had the wisdom to protect Yellowstone. Uh, and so we want to celebrate that. And also, if you go to Yellowstone next year, you're going to be in the company of a lot of other people who are celebrating both Yellowstone and the concept of national parks. You're going to have educators and scientists and folks giving new and unusual tours. And frankly, any year that you can go to Yellowstone is a good year. It's it's a place where you don't run out of things to see and do. How could you? It's the size of the state of Connecticut. It has the largest concentration of mammals in the lower 48 states, which means it's kind of like, it feels like you're on safari when you're in Yellowstone. You're driving down the uh, road and suddenly there's a traffic jam caused by a herd of bison walking across the road and you camp out and you hear wolves howling in the distance and you see trumpeter swans. Uh, and if you go in winter, it's a great place to go because this is the largest concentration too of geothermal, what's the word, sites or attractions on the planet. And I'm talking about bubbling mud pots and fumaroles and 300 uh, uh, geysers. And in the winter, those act kind of in the way that a watering hole does uh, on an African savanna. If you go to Africa, to the places where you ha go for safaris in the dry season, it's very easy to see animals because they all gather around the water holes. Well, in Yellowstone, if you go there in the winter, the animals all gather in the geothermal areas of the park because they're warmer. It's a good way for them to keep warm. So not only are those animals all there, in the winter especially, you can see them easily. So just a, a spectacular, fascinating place to visit. So Yellowstone makes our list because of that. We are also recommending going to the state of Oklahoma. Why? Well, like Charleston, they are embracing their past this year. Uh, they embraced it in 2021 with the debut of two new museums, and we'll be doing so again in 2022 with another great new museum. In the city of Oklahoma City uh, is going to be the First Nations Museum. This is a museum that cost $175 million to build. It's been in the planning stages for about 15 years. And what makes it so impressive is the people who are planning it. It is being planned by the 39 tribal nations who live in Oklahoma now, many of whom were marched there unwillingly in the 1830s on what has come to be known as the Trail of Tears. Uh, so it, it's going to be a spectacular museum. In fact, it already is. It opened in 2021 with important artifacts, many on permanent loan for the Smithsonian, uh, live performances. You'll meet members of the tribal nations who are always sending 
representatives to the museum to talk about their culture and history. Uh, it just looks like it's going to be spectacular. So you go to Oklahoma City for that. Oklahoma City is also a big surprise. I was there hmm, maybe about a decade ago. And you visit, of course, the memorial in front of the federal building where there was that terrible bombing. Uh, you visit the a splendid art gallery, uh, which has the largest collection of Dale Chihuly glass pieces in the, on the planet. You go to the really fun cowboy museum, and then you get on Route 66. Oklahoma has the uh, largest stretch of Route 66, and you drive to Tulsa to see two new great museums. Uh, the first is the Greenwood Rising History Center. Now, if you watched the HBO series called The Watchmen, you know this history, but this is a history that was buried uh, for many, many years. In 1921, Tulsa had one of the most prosperous black communities in the United States. And then in that year, a horrific riot, probably the worst race riot in American history, totally leveled that neighborhood. Uh, buildings were destroyed. Thousands of people were killed. And then that history was buried. Well, that history is being brought to light once more at the Greenwood Rising History Center. And it, too, looks like a game-changing museum. Now, near that, in the Arts District, is going to be the new Bob Dylan Center, which we're all excited about. Bob Dylan himself has been very involved planning this. It's going to have 100,000 artifacts that he donated. There's going to be concerts. There's going to be videos for you to see. If you are a fan of that Nobel Prize winning artist, uh, Oklahoma is where you want to go. We're all also rec uh, recommending the, what's called the Space Coast of Florida. That's because it has become home once again to launches. Uh, 50 years since the authorization of the space program created all of these launch pads for the space shuttle, those pads aren't being used by the space shuttle anymore, but they're being used by over 100 private sector partners, including, you know, Elon Musk's uh, Musk's SpaceX, uh, to launch their own rockets. And so people are gathering to watch this reblooming of the space program, but not, not the official governmental one. Now it's in the private sector. Uh, if you go to Fromers.com and look at our article on uh, the top places to go, we have a link to a website that shows you when you can see these space launches. As well, the Kennedy Space uh, Center is going to be opening a really cool-looking new exhibition uh, next year about deep space exploration. It promises to be just terrific. Okay, next on the list, Puerto Rico. Uh, this year, 2021, was the 500th birthday of the city of San Juan. So when you go there, everything has been spiffed up for those celebrations, and yet you won't have to deal with the crowds that came for the 500th anniversary. Um, included in the new sites was this place called the Distrito T-Mobile, which is this fabulous entertainment 
district. But if you go to Puerto Rico, you get to ex- experience the Caribbean without leaving the U.S., which means that you don't have to get a COVID test within 24 hours of going there, which unfortunately right now is a big incentive. You get to have a Caribbean vacation without the hassle of going to other Caribbean places. Okay, also on the list, we put the Great Lakes region on the list because for the first time, it is getting really, really swanky uh, cruises that are going to be knitting that region together in an interesting way. Uh, And if you've never been to the Great Lakes, wow, are you in to be impressed. Uh, This is a region that houses some of our mightiest cities, some of our most fascinating historic sites. I'm a huge fan of Mackinac Island, uh, which is this island with a historic fort that where the, the locals decided to heck with automobiles. We don't ever want them. And so you get around everywhere in horse and carriage, and it really feels like you've gone back in time. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful place to visit. It's on every itinerary that goes around the Great Lakes on these cruise ships. And hopefully cruising will be safe again soon. I know I started by saying it's not safe. As I said, when we did this list six weeks ago, this looked like a good idea. I think it is. The Great Lakes, you know, even if you don't take one of these cruises, it's such a wonderful area to visit. Interestingly, it's become a big winery area because it it can host the type of wines that are getting harder to grow in other parts of the U.S. I'm talking about grapes that need to be in direct sunlight and heat during the day, but then cooling at night. They, they do certain white wine varietals need that type of uh, growth pattern. And unfortunately, because of climate change, many places just aren't cooling down enough at night to give a home to those types of grapes. But because of the Great Lakes and the winds that come off them, it still gets significantly cooler at night in that area. And so these types of grapes can grow. And that has led to this real renaissance for the wineries of that region. And the nice thing about going winery hopping in, say, northern Michigan is instead of paying $15, $20 to taste wines, you pay three or five you know, much less expensive than Napa. Uh, We also recommend going to New York City. Yes, I know that as I do this uh, broadcast, New York is one of the centers for COVID, but that won't be forever. I can tell you, I'm sitting in New York saying this, that the city is still vital. It's still one of the safest cities, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Uh, And The reason we're recommending it this year is because the city has lost pretty much all of its business travel, it's never been as cheap to visit here. Uh, It it used to be that New York City had the highest hotel rates in in this hemisphere, not just the country, but the whole hemisphere. Not so anymore. I was editing a book to Maine this summer while I was researching our guidebook, the Fromer's Guidebook to New York, and I was seeing higher hotel costs in Maine than I was in New York. So 
much, much less expensive to visit New York than it's been in, in probably two decades, probably since right after 9-11 in 2001. Uh, as well, it's cheaper to go to Broadway shows uh, because they're hurting for uh, for people to go. I saw two Broadway shows for $39 a piece. Now, sometimes, you're, most of the time, you're going to pay more than that, but it's still much easier to get discounts and much easier to get into shows. Uh, you want to see Hamilton? You're going to be able to stroll up to the box office and get get tickets. So if you ever wanted to see New York City, now's the time. Plus, finally, some really interesting new attractions. Not only are there some great museum exhibitions coming up in 2022, including the biennial at the Whitney every Two years, the, the Whitney Museum shows the best American art that they've searched the country for in the past two years, and they'll be doing that in 2022. But there's also some wacky new stuff happening. There's a great new observatory called Summit One Vanderbilt that's covered with mirrors and has floating orbs, and you know you can stand on, on platforms that jut out from the building and are just glass, so it looks like you could fall through the floor. I mean, just crazy stuff. And at the development that's known at Hudson Yards, they have they have created the tallest building climb on the planet. They've created the pulley system, and you're attached to it. And and anybody who wants to do it, any daredevil can now climb up the top of this skyscraper on the outside of the building. So you're going to be climbing up, I think it's over 1,200 feet in the air. You'll be out with the winds whipping you. I don't know. For some reason, that for some people, that'll be a reason not to go to New York, but I know it's going to appeal to some others. So, So lots of really great new things in New York. And as I said at the start, cheaper than it's been in ages. The final suggestion, Las Vegas. A, a strange thing has happened with music in the last two years. Live music for many months, as we all know, disappeared. And a lot of the major artists have are now nervous. Oh, actually, this is not the, the last. This is the second to last. Uh, but a lot of the major artists are now nervous about touring. And so what they've started doing in the last six months, and it, it's going into overdrive in 2022, is doing residencies in Las Vegas in view of touring. And some of the biggest names in the industry, I'm talking Adele, John Legend, Carrie Underwood, Katy Perry, Luke Bryan, Celine Dion, Sting, they all are doing residencies in Las Vegas in 2022. So if you're a person who loves music, that's the place to go. A lot of major comedians also are doing residencies. Bill Maher, John Lovitz, Jim Gaffigan, George Lopez. The list goes on and on. Plus, there's a major new uh, casino, Resorts World Las Vegas on the Strip, which brought uh, the first kind of Asian-style food court to Las Vegas, which is a lot of fun. Uh, there's a, a new bakery in that place uh, from star pastry maker Dominique Ansel. He's the guy who created the cronut. And just a lot of aggressive event scheduling uh, to bring in folks 
who aren't conventioneers because, you know, Las Vegas, interestingly enough, Las Vegas lost its convention business. It lost its international travel. And yet the casinos of Las Vegas are on track to have the best six month run in terms of uh, profits, in terms of the money gamblers lost in the last, I think actually in history, not the last 10 years, it's actually in history. So Las Vegas is is thriving in the midst of this pandemic, if you can believe it or not. Uh, So that's the second to last, the penultimate place on our list. The ultimate place is the new River Gorge National Park and Preserve. This is West Virginia's very first national park. It's absolutely gorgeous. And for folks who like to get out into into the wilderness this place can't be beat white water rafting mountain biking rock climbing you hike to waterfalls you see old mining outposts you see this part of america uh, that's been really well preserved mostly because it never was built up uh it's just a gorgeous gorgeous new national park uh, that we highly recommend. All right. I've talked myself blue in the face, but I, as always, I thank you for listening. And uh, to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Change.